Donald Trump gets indicted once again. Political upheaval in Israel shows no signs of letting up. American forces surging to the Persian Gulf and the U.S.-China Cold War heats up. To cover all these issues and many more, we are joined by columnist, commentator, longtime national security reporter, Eli Lake. It's right here. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insiders Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg, joined by my partner in all civil affairs. We don't say partner in crime, Jared. Civil affairs, uh, Jared Bernstein. And uh, very excited to have a very close longtime friend on the podcast, Eli Lake, who is a contributing editor at Commentary Magazine and host of The Re-Education with Eli Lake, available wherever you get your podcasts, like ours. He's a former syndicated columnist on foreign affairs and national security for Bloomberg, he was a reporter for the Daily Beast and Newsweek, the Washington Times, UPI, and the New York Sun, which is back. Eli has reported from all the fun vacation spots of the world, like Iraq, Iran, North Korea, China, India, Egypt, and yes, Israel. And we're pleased to welcome to the podcast, Eli Lake. Eli, welcome. Rich, it's uh, it's so great to be here. I love this podcast, and it's I'm honored to be a guest on it. Thank you. We're going to get reeducated. We and, and uh, I'm, I'm honored to be in both of your presences. By the way, well, just so well, clear. you're too kind. <laughs> the reeducation with Eli Lake. It's a it's a powerful uh, it's a powerful title. That's your, that's your podcast. You well, uh, it's a great podcast. Everybody should subscribe and listen to it. We do deep historical dives. We do great interviews. Sometimes I will have just a monologue where I vent my frustrations about Russiagate, uh, although that story is kind of over, so I'll be venting my frustrations about Huntergate or something else. But my, I should say my main focus right now, um, I love doing the more historical deep dives. We're in the middle of uh, what I call Church and Deep State, which is about the church committee from 50 years ago. Uh, it's a fascinating topic, which really does kind of give us the origin maybe of the moment that we're in right now, where you have one political party that uh, doesn't really believe in the, um, I guess you could say, integrity of the FBI or the uh, intelligence community. And this is sort of where that comes from. So I find that doing the kind of historical dives tells us a lot about where we are right now. So Eli, maybe let's start there um, yeah. because the whole idea that like Democrats and lefties are saying, you know, are are the fan club for the FBI and the CIA. It's like the world's kind of got turned on its head. Uh, where do you think that comes from? And is it does it have any chance of changing anytime soon? That is a great question. Well, I mean, we're seeing a, a realignment. So there is an element of the left, which uh, you know, was always kind of maybe you could say not on the fringe, but like, you know, sort of the grassroots base of the Democratic Party that has basically thrown up their hands. And they're not necessarily Republicans, but those are the people who I think are taking a look at RFK Jr. or Marianne Williamson. And they are just so disdainful. They have nothing but contempt for MSNBC, which is sort of supposed to be the cable news outlet of the Democrats and the liberals. And you know, it's, you know, we know the names, Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald, but I kind of think that that represents a significance. So that's one part. So there's some people who've never gone anywhere. The other thing is, is it's politically convenient. You know, I mean, uh, during the Cold War, uh, there were people who were on the right who believed that the Democrats were too soft on international communism. And so they identified with the FBI and the CIA in the Cold War, even though I think that if you would ask somebody like a Barry Goldwater, what do you think of some of these excesses from Hoover's FBI? He would have said, yeah, this is a real problem. It cuts to the constitutional. But, you know, I'm still concerned about the threat of the Soviet Union. Well, I think right now it's not I am myself. I'm very worried about Vladimir Putin and uh, Russia as I am about Iran and red China. But I do think that there's much more of a sense after 2016 that the Democrats blame Russia for losing that election. And that has sort of put them on a trajectory where they become the kind of, at times, the Baghdad bobs of various scandals that have affected the FBI, which is just kind of like scandal after scandal, not just on partisan matters like Russiagate, but you can just look, I mean, like look at the ha their handling of... Um, 
the uh, allegations into Dr. Nasser, the um, awful, you know, doctor with the Olympic uh, gymnastics team that was sexually abusing, you know, scores of young girls, um, you know, that if you dive into that case, what you find is that like there were people who were telling them this guy is doing all this stuff and it was slow rolled and, you know, it, it there wasn't any kind of accountability for the FBI agents who really screwed up. Um, and it's become a kind of pattern. Uh, we see it with the FISA court, which is supposed to oversee surveillance warrants. That system seems to have broken down and it's beyond just simply the, the Russiagate. So I think that's where it kind of comes from, which is that it looked like the FBI kind of had Trump in its crosshair in his in their crosshairs, and if you are a partisan, um, then you know you're 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 kind of applauding that. Even though on principle, I could see many liberals sort of saying, "Well, maybe these powers could be one day turned on our guy," um, but so far that that insight has not yet occurred. Well, I mean, as somebody who's a partisan on the other side, you know, you look at Comey and you're saying, "Wow, maybe you know." Uh, Maybe if he had his head on a little bit straighter and and played things a little bit more by the book, you know, maybe he tipped the election in the other direction. So I think it's interesting that there's this distrust all around of these institutions. Um, but but you know. that has if, not if, if translated. Comey had been as fair to Hillary as he was to Hunter Biden, you know that's that's that's. Yeah, that's but Rich, wild. Rich. By the way, I meant to tell you this on our text, Rich. You know, Hunter kidding, Biden's not kidding. Hunter Biden's not running for office. Well, it, I want to back up a second because I okay. do want to get to Trump's indictment and what it means for our democracy. I want to talk about Russia. But if, I, if I could just on that yeah, on that Comey ahead. point, for many years I agreed with you, Jared, that there was you know we all know what happened. I mean, he he had an announcement to say that he wasn't uh, going. To, no reasonable prosecutor would bring a case against Hillary Clinton for her incredibly reckless i'm i'm paraphrasing like you right. know handling of her private email server now at the time a lot of people were like well this is totally unusual if you if you're not going to bring charges then why are you chastising one of the candidates this is an unfair interference and i think i accept it as far as it goes what we've learned particularly from special counsel john Durham, is that the internal fbi process for looking into other problems that hillary had in this like foreign influence, that they went out of their way, basically, to slow roll investigations, to not grant, you know, even apply for FISA warrants, um, you know, to stop investigative activity. And then they took the opposite approach when it came to opening an investigation into Trump, which was on the thinnest of thin allegations having to do with this junior chipmunk named George Papadopoulos and, um, you know, his loose talk in a wine bar in London. So my point here is that Yes, Comey kind of like overtly did this very unusual thing. But in the context of trying to clear Clinton, he reopens it again when he feels he has no choice, but then closes it still before the election appoint. Most people sort of, you know, but I right. feel like that was all him bending over backwards to try to give her the benefit of the doubt. And I, by the way, wrote at the time, I I'm against prosecutions in general having to do with like, excessive classification or state secrecy. That's a separate issue. We can get into that in the context of Trump. But I was not, I, I was actually kind of defense, defending Clinton. Like I wrote a column saying, don't let the FBI tip this election. Right. Behind the scenes, what the FBI was doing to, to basically not investigate the Clinton Foundation in, in the run-up to the election, but then compare that to all of these crazy aggressive steps that they took and then ignoring the take so they would send out confidential informants that would say, I don't know what you're talking about. We, we're, we're not in touch with any Russians. And then that stuff would never make it to the FISA court. And it wasn't, you know what I'm saying? And they would still right. keep this investigation open. And then to rely on crappy opposition research, clearly paid for by Hillary Clinton. I mean, that that stuff to me stinks to high heaven. And I still feel like there needs to be a better reckoning on it. And I'm not saying that as a partisan point. I'm saying it as a... We, I'm saying as somebody who understands we need an FBI and it has to have credibility and democratic right. legitimacy. So right. that's it needs to be, we need it. We need a better nonpartisan FBI, which well, I think we well, can all agree point, on. I, I yeah. want to step back here and just ask like a, a global question here. And I do want to get to a lot of other topics. But so Jim Comey, you know, at the at the end of Obama in, in, into into Trump, uh, Chris Ray from Trump into Biden. uh we have distrust across three different administrations, three different uh, episodes uh, that we can look at. 
Um, clearly on both sides of the aisle, I'm hearing from people who are, you know, on the right saying like, oh, we should just get rid of the FBI, which is like lunacy in my view. Like, like we're just going to get rid of the FBI. Like we're just, we don't, we don't need an FBI. Like, you know, it's like, oh, we have a lot of other law. Like somebody's running for president saying like, oh, we should just get rid of the FBI. We have other law. Yeah. But that's like people say, that's like people saying defund the police. We don't need to defund the police. We need better police, right? But I have heard very thoughtful people who worked in the Trump administration who made a lot of decisions and are being held to account for it now and, and being criticized, who did not want to tip the scales of the 2020 election in certain cases that have that have now sort of blown over like Hunter Biden, you know, say that there is something wrong systematically within the FBI, and it happens to be the Washington headquarters of the FBI. And Maybe we have a lot. We, you, you can always have problems in a field office. You can try to reform a field office. You can you can switch out uh, a special agent in charge if there was a problem in Michigan or something like that. That's like always going to happen in an organization. But there is a culture of Washingtonians that has been built at the FBI that doesn't matter who's in power. There are just these like political sycophants who have been put there in desk jobs just to work Washington. And that should not happen at the FBI. How do you react to that? I would agree. I mean, I've written a lot about this. I did a big piece almost a year ago for the uh, for commentary that looked at like sort of basically asking the question, can we save the FBI and can we can we save ourselves from the FBI? And I would say that it, I would go even deeper. I would say that there it's it's no good to have a single agency that has both a counterintelligence function, which is a form of espionage under the same roof as law enforcement or police functions. So the pro- and the reason for that, just to sort of really simplify it, is that when you're in the world of intelligence and counterintelligence, you're violating the law, you're operating at the margins of the law. You're bra- you know, that's why, you know, in the 20th century before we had all the cyber capability, the FBI was known for something called black bag jobs, which were break-ins where you would set up bugs that's a crime. So what we want is law enforcement to just focus on solving crimes in the past tense, whereas counterintelligence is like preventing, you know, things to happen, whether it's espionage or counterterrorism, preventing terrorist attack. Maybe we should think about having another agency and then have the FBI basically check that agency instead of it kind of having a foot in both camps, which I think does and I would agree with you totally about the Washington office. I don't think it's a question of like, well, people who join the FBI are, you know, the Democrats. In fact, historically, usually there are more conservative people who join the FBI. But there is something about the Washington culture. And under at least, you know, in the period of Obama, um, especially in the 2016, which was such a weird year, it was an outsider in Trump and Hillary was such an insider that I think that the kind of Washington establishment rallied around Hillary and the FBI was part of that. Um, but it's not, it's not true that historically like someone who grows up and says, you know what I want to do? I want to bust child trafficking tra- traffickers or drug dealers. Someone like that usually is like, you know, has a, has a poster of Ronald Reagan in their dorm room, not a, <laughs> not a poster of Che Guevara. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I spent, uh, like two and a half years as a political appointee at the Department of Homeland Security. And I was told stories of sort of the or, the origin story of DHS and how certain elements of the FBI came very close to be being chopped off and put over DHS. Now, the DHS org chart and how it was made up, you know, it was done overnight and there's, you know, hindsight is very much 2020 about how it exists, what's there, what's not there. But it always struck me that like the agency responsible for investigating and preventing terrorist acts is not part of the department of homeland security right um yeah and it's it, 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 you know it's sort of a key function um and it's not there and and you know historically the disconnect between dhs and the bureau has been you know close to legendary um i digress a little bit but it's definitely you know worth uh, good-natured people on both sides of the aisle taking a really hard look about what what the best makeup of the FBI is to serve the American public and restore confidence because we need it. And, and you can all go to the re-education with Eli Lake to hear many a uh, monologue and rant uh, from Eli about this topic, uh, and we encourage you to do so. But I would like to to shift gears just a little bit and not 
not leave the messy American domestic political scene because I, I think that uh, the upheaval we are in deserves more uh, more discussion. Uh, Donald Trump now indicted again. Uh, it's no big deal, though, Rich, not, right? I mean, really, though, we're going to see like multiple trials unfolding while he's likely still to be the the leader, you know, throughout this primary season, unless something dramatic happens, we may see another candidate come forward. There are a couple who I, I, I like who, who, who are, are, are making some moves here and could surprise us in Iowa and New Hampshire and, and upend them. But right now, presumptive nominee, uh, by, by many, um, if he is the nominee of the Republican party in a presidential election on trial, potentially convicted while, while he's running, I mean, are we on the verge of a civil war here? Like what is to be done here? And like, I know Democrats and, and I understand you read the indictments, you read the facts and it's, and I'm shaken by it all. I was shaken by January 6th. It disturbs me. There are a lot of people who don't like Donald Trump. You were one who I don't think liked Donald Trump back in 2016. Uh, but there's something wrong here. If like, we're going to tear our democracy apart. I mean, it, should somebody be pardoning him just like, uh, you know, I, I just something has to happen here. Otherwise, might we have a civil war? Who will save us from the people who are saving democracy is another way of asking your question. Right. Because I think that one thing I really want to do, if I if I could 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 go in and like take over Lawrence O'Donnell's show and, you know, really speak to that hardcore audience that, you know, constantly has on like Andrew Weissman and. Barbara McQuaid and all these, you know, former prosecutors is to say, you can deplore a candidate and you can deplore things that Trump did. But there's, you don't, that doesn't mean that you have to find a law that he violated and prosecute him because we're about to see today or this week in this January 6th um, indictment, what will begin like a negotiation? Uh, will will the judge place a gag order on Donald Trump in the, while he's campaigning in a primary? That is, um, so in some ways, like you know, I'm I'm trying to 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 steel man the other side of the argument because I'm against all of the indictments so far uh, for different reasons. I mean, but and and I should say. People always ask me, so like, presidents are above the law? And I'm like, no, that's not it. I just think that if you're going to indict a former president who is currently running for office and is kind of the de facto leader of the opposition, it should be for um, what Bill Barr has called a meat and potatoes kind of crime, which is that you know he either stole a lot of money or killed somebody or and something like that, not uh, classified documents or... Um, this very novel legal theory that is trying to criminalize admittedly horrendous behavior, but it is criminalizing what was a political crime and should have been, I would totally support the second impeachment, even though I also think it was written poorly. I don't care. He should have been impeached at the very end. And that's the way that our system is supposed to handle it. Unless they can prove that he coordinated with Oath Keepers or other groups that had brought weapons into the Capitol, um, which I don't think they have that, um, because I, I understand the limits on free speech and everything, then I just think this is just asking for trouble. And there is no appreciation. It's almost like in order to solve this problem of like this demagogue who has captured uh, one of our political parties, we're going to create another problem for our democracy, which is to effectively deprive millions of Americans of their choice to run for office in 2024. I'm sorry, but that's just not going to work. I don't know if there's going to be a civil war. I don't want to like speculate. You know, I think that it's somewhat, and, and it might be like, we'll have the first social media civil war or something. Who knows? You know what I'm saying? It might be like a, an online civil war, but it's very bad. And there needs to be some appreciation. I would hope for the party that currently controls the justice department to understand that even if you can, it doesn't mean you should. And there are implications for criminalizing your opposition. Even if you think the guy is the worst, there's got to be another way. So uh, 
And Eli, I hear that, right? So like yeah. you're saying, like unless it's a slam dunk, we should not be criminalizing political behavior. Oh, that not it, even that, not more than that. I would say unless you can, it's it's got to be not just a slam dunk, but it's also got to be like, I, as I said, it's got to be like a, a meat and potatoes crime. Right. It's got, you got to get them like, you know, w- with the bags of cash in the freezer or, you know, the smoking gun literally in the dead body, that kind of thing. Not this like my theory. I have three different ways about why his behavior after he loses the election and I'm going to prove his state of mind. Maybe Jack Smith can prove that he knew he was lying and was doing this and the whole thing is a scam. Um, And it's perfectly fine for, you know, columnists like myself to speculate how could Trump have possibly believed this. It's a totally different thing in a court of law to claim that you know what this guy was thinking, especially since there seems to be he can. I mean, I don't know. Has Trump stopped saying he lost as he as he acknowledged that he lost the election? He hasn't. He still says he, he he was stolen. So I, you know, I, I just that's the part of it that I'm very concerned about. And that you think that it creates more problems than it solves by by effectively criminalizing, you know, political conduct. I, I mean, listen, there is a strong case that the first two and a half years of Trump's presidency was pretty much like he was kind of tied down and hamstrung and crippled by a totally phony scandal that was generated by his political opponent and then was, you know, like unbelievably taken seriously and boosted by the leadership of the FBI. That's a fair criticism. And there's an argument that I think that Trump supporters would make, which is that 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 was a, a way of delegitimizing the 2016 election. And then you know, and if you want to go back, you know, there's a history of um, not presidential candidates, but certainly prominent Democrats claiming that, you know, elections were not on the up and up and that, you know, Bush was illegitimate and things like that. So this was something that in our system was sort of tolerated when it was done at a lower level. And now it's like, if you do that, you are violating, you're committing a fraud on the U.S. government. Listen, I'm not trying to, I'm not equating the two. But after 2016, there were groups of very prominent Democrats, including John Podesta, who supported this cockamamie scheme to convince Trump electors to become faithless electors, switch their votes for Hillary. Now, if you're going to tell me, I mean, that sounds to me like it would meet the criteria of fraud against the government and disrupting an official act that Jack Smith puts out. If you're going to ignore that and only do it with Trump, and there's a lot of examples of that you can do with the class, the classified documents and stuff with Mar-a-Lago, even though what he did was terrible in terms of pretending, like ignoring subpoenas and lying to the FBI, all that's very bad. I'm not defending it as, but I'm saying that right there, it's like there's, you just run into this problem of like, you're exacerbating what is already a perception. There's a double standard of justice when it comes to Republicans and Trump supporters, and you're doing it again. I mean, I'm just, so my thing is, is that has anyone thought this through? Has anyone thought through what the implications of this case are? And the fact that you are, whether you're doing it for the best reasons or not, you're depriving, you're potentially depriving the right of millions of Americans to vote for the candidate of their choice, as poll after poll has shown especially recently. I mean, his lead looks insurmountable at this point. I wish that wasn't the case, but that is the case at this moment. And something like this is just, it's its like, you know, Biden's Justice Department is reaching in and, and telling... Right. I mean, I don't, it's, it's a campaign yeah. ad for Donald Trump in every primary, you know. I, well, in no. a way. But, but, but my, fear, my fear really is this. I, th- I think that there are a lot of Democrats who truly believe that they are doing their patriotic duty that this man tried to destroy our democracy, tried to steal an election, tried to do whatever it is that he that he really has conducted criminal activity and no one's above the law and that this is the right thing to do and that to not do it would be actually be to politicize in the Justice Department. And then there are an equal number of Republicans who are out there who believe that this is completely politicizing an election, railroading the man, doing, you know, deciding to do everything you just articulated there, double standard with Hunter Biden, et cetera. And like, you're right. There's just nobody in the middle just saying, 
hey, uh, democracy is not supposed to be like this. We're not we're not supposed to take ourselves to the brink like this. Yeah, you know, Rich, it's funny. So I, I would say I'm of two minds to this, right? So I'm a, I'm a partisan, I'm a Democrat. Uh, on the one hand, I hear everything you guys are saying, right? Because like the difference between us and many other countries in the world is that we don't throw former presidents in jail, right? Like we don't do that. That's not our history. But then the second half of that is we also don't have, don't have presidents who behave like Donald Trump. And so it's like a chicken and an egg problem from where I'm sitting. All right? of this and is a chicken and an egg problem. When I'm sitting around with yeah. all my Democrat friends, right, that's, that's the, the question, right? Like y- we've never had a president even come close to doing what Donald Trump did on January 6th where he, you know, at, at the most charitable, tolerated uh, what was an attempted insurrection, whether or not he actually was complicit, you know, the fact, you know, lots of people have lots of theories, but like. Clearly, he he wasn't upset and didn't act uh, didn't act really forcefully to put it down quickly. So it's like, okay, we don't do the thing. The second, the first thing I said, we don't really do that as a country, but we also really don't do the second thing we do as a country. And so the question is, how do you break that cycle? Because you know, Democrats feel like, well, you know, uh, we're we're sort of responding in kind to what this guy did. Uh, you know, leaving aside what happened the first the first two years of the administration, which I feel like was more like politics as usual, unfortunately, um, and that January sixth really changed all that. But I don't know. I listen. I think you're right. It was it. There was something about what Trump did which was extreme and worse than some of the challenges before. But I think you, I see it more as part of a continuum, mm-hmm. which is like. You know, it's not the same. Don't equate it. But like, you know, when John Podesta and I might add President Jed Bartlett of the West Wing, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry to say, did that PSA asking, you know, Trump electors to change their vote. OK, well, that's not as bad as the January 6th riot or, you know, all that. OK, but it's on the continuum. I mean, it's 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 pushing the limit. And, and also there was a sense after Trump was elected in 2016 before he could prove that, you know, you know, that he was a norm violator, even though he did kind of prove it on the campaign trail. But before he was president, he wins an election and the FBI and the media and like all these institutions decided that they went into resistance mode and they did things they would never have done if it had been anybody but Trump because they are before January 6th. Four years before January 6th, mm-hmm. there was this view that Trump was an existential threat to our democracy. In order to save democracy, we have to fight harder and dirtier than, you know, this uh, golem, this, you know, this <laughs> monster who has, you know, who has been nominated and, and won an election, you know, th- from Hillary. And like, I have to say that is um, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more wisdom and leadership from prominent Democrats in 2017 that say, we don't want to go down this road. There's no, I mean, when we violate right. norms, it weakens the system as well. We need right. to kind of hold our fire in reserve. I actually think that had the Democrats not like, you know, I don't know, gotten Russiagate fever and lost their freaking minds on this story, there would have been more Republicans open had that not been a thing to the first impeachment in, you know, the end of 2019. Um, but there wasn't. And so de- Republicans had gone through this whole thing where, remember, he starts his presidency and it's normal for the gatekeepers of our media and Democrats in Democratic leaders to say he's a Russian agent. Nancy Pelosi said that throughout his uh, presidency. And then we find out that Mueller is like found no evidence of conspiracy or collusion. Come on. Like, right. you know what I'm saying? And then right after that, then we get the Ukraine call. And obviously it wasn't a perfect phone call. But my point is that, like, what do you expect? Like, the Republicans have just been through the ringer on this. Do they well, are they going to, well, like, turn around and say, oh, well, let me let me take a look at your facts, Mr. Schiff, after you told me if you snowed me for, like, all this time on the Russia stuff? I mean, I don't know. All right, Rich, we want to move on from Trump. Well, yeah, I don't want to move no, on from Trump. Well, I can well, talk well, about I'm, Trump I'm, I'm the whole time. I, I, I think this is clarifying. Hopefully it is to our listeners. I know this is a little bit off the beaten path for us, but but we, we don't talk to uh, an observer of modern society like Eli Lake often, so it, we, we take the opportunity. Oh, wait, can but I ask? I, oh, you got one, Rich? Oh, I, no, I have no, one I more follow-up. No, no, I was going to say that I, I, I feel like 
And Eli, you're diving into this in your podcast. You're going to a lot of history here. You're seeing all the different moments where the American people have questioned institutions and we've been in each other's throats before the Vietnam War, post-Vietnam, Watergate. My question really is, are we just at this fever pitch of both sides believing the other side is depriving them of their basic rights? Like, it's like, that's how it sort of feels. Like, whether Clinton feels she was she had her election stolen, the Trump people think that he was delegitimized with Russiagate and the witch hunt. People were okay. I, I want to stop you right there, though. Clinton has it, Clinton says that she does say that. You're right. She shouldn't say that. It was I, no, invest- I agree with you. It was but, investigated. Like I'm saying, I'm, her, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, it, I'm right. just saying, all yeah, yeah. of the, everybody who says something when you're the leader of a party and yeah. you're the presidential candidate means that. Tens of millions of Americans believe that that is their Bible for the rest of their lives. And, and, you know, then you get into like, oh, well, uh, I, you know, Merrick Garland wasn't, wasn't, you know, put up for a vote. And then Amy Coney Barrett was, was rammed through before the election. And then, and then, but, you know, but Harry Reid got rid of the filibuster. And then it's like, you know, all these things just keep escalating against each other. And, and, and we're not pulling back from the brink. We're getting to to this close to the brink that I can imagine in my lifetime, but I wonder if this isn't so like out of out of the ordinary across the continuum of American history. Well, I think things were, I mean, at the end of the 1960s, we had a bombing like every other day in major cities, and there were, you know, I mean, we we had in the military before Nixon ends the draft. Um, something phenomenon known as fragging we had like race riots you know on navy ships we had it was, it was a very bad moment um after especially after the assassination of martin luther king and the assassination of bobby kennedy in 68 um I, I i was not born then but like imagine living through the assassination of john kennedy and then the guy who killed john kennedy is then killed by jack ruby and then jack ruby died. i mean like how do you not become a conspiracy theorist after that, right? So, and then you read the, the Warren Commission report and there's all these problems. And then we find out a few years later that the CIA and the FBI kept important files from the Warren Commission. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you are just paying attention, you're starting off, let's say like, you know, up to 1963, you're just Mr. Patriot, super Patriot American and everything else like that. You know, they killed Kennedy. That's weird. Oh my God, they killed the guy who killed the guy. And then the other guy gets killed. And then, oh my God, this Warren Commission doesn't make any fucking sense. Excuse my language, right? But like, my point is that like, that there's a reason, I mean, like at a certain point we had to, you know, the country was coming unraveled and nobody trusted any of these institutions. Throw on top of that, the corruption of Watergate, some of the other scandals, like, you know, the the ITT scandal, Spiro Agnew, Everybody, you know, and then there was, you know, multiply that across local political. So there were all these like, you know, scandals that involved big cities. And then, you know, everybody, you know, the the political class was corrupted. The 70s were a really rough time. It's amazing that we lived through it. But then then along came Reagan and, uh, you know, we got another trajectory. But my point my point here is that, like, we've we've had rough moments before. We had a civil war in the 19th century, obviously. Um Although I'd say that civil war was over something that I can really understand, like, you know, you know, it was good to have a war to end slavery. Um, What would this civil war be about? Like, (laughs) you know, stop making fun of me on on Twitter. I don't know. Like, you know what? Um, So there is a part where I think that, like, it's just people are frustrated and angry and they and it's there was a very I mean, I'll, I'll end my little soliloquy here with this. If you remember in 2016, which is really becoming this hinge year in our history, um, there was an essay that was written anonymously by Michael Anton called the flight. Was it 16 election? The, the flight 23 election? I don't know. Flight 93. Flight the 93. flight 93. Sorry. The flight 93 election. And it made the case that the Republican Party had no choice but to support an uncouth kind of vulgarian like Trump because if they didn't like the country was ruined like we were we were we were literally like in the we, we had to charge the cockpit because the plane was about to crash and the, the plane being the republic my point is that that sort of thinking when you think that that is that things are that bad it will it's a that's a permission structure to let you do all kinds of stuff that you would never have supported before. And something like that happened after Trump wins, that he's an existential threat and we're going to do things that we would normally never do. And that at first you could say as an emergency measure, we had to break the glass. 
But now we're like seven years after the break glass moment, and we still ha- and we have a politi- we still have at least the we have two political parties that are now like we, we have to do whatever it takes to win, and uh, if we lose, that's it. The country's gone. Now that's a really bad situation, and my hope is that maybe new leaders can step up or a new party can step up or something. Just to move to a more positive note, we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. (laughs) Positive, right, yeah. Uh, You know, it's a good time to reflect, uh, I think, on where we are in the world. Um, That was probably the low point, I think everybody would agree, of the Biden administration. Uh, I think it symbolized a low point. I think perception of the Biden administration changed after that. If you look at polling, everybody sort of moves that moment. Uh, I'm curious your view on where the world is today for American interests, where you think things are going well in the world, if ever, uh, where you think we should be most worried about, uh, and reflections on Afghanistan itself. Wow. Well, that's an open-ended question. Um, yeah, because yeah. I don't know where you take it. You, you know, you, you give you the keys and just say, start driving. I mean, who well, needs Well, Rich, ways? you know, I'm like, I'm very optimistic, even though Mali is gone it looks like, you know, this Biden administration's got a great new approach to an Iran nuclear deal. <laughs> Just kidding, everybody. That was a little troll on my part. Um, well, uh, I have to say I'm surprised that um, the Biden administration, and I want to credit the Biden administration for uh, keeping NATO together, arming the Ukrainians, with the caveat that I just wish every time they would leak out a story that says we can't give them F-16s and then they end up doing it like two months later, just skip the part where you're hemming and hawing and do it. Like just what, you know what I mean? It seems like now that's the strategy. It's a smart strategy. The Ukrainians have proved unbelievably resilient. It should be a way for us to maybe have a little bit more confidence in our military because we trained up uh, elements of the Ukrainian resistance, obviously before, after the first invasion of Crimea And there would be, you know, you if you thought to yourself, how much money did we throw down the drain to train up in an Afghan military that just evaporated in the face of Taliban resistance? That's an uncharitable view. I think one of the reasons that happened is because we announced we were leaving and we didn't give them air cover, but okay. But actually, there are these success stories. And another one that I think we always forget when we're all listing the, you know, various woe is me about American hegemony um, is you know, we beat back this horrible ISIS caliphate by training up and arming and embedding special operators with largely Kurdish Maoists and uh, other Arab fighters. That's a testament to the professionalism, skill, and quality of our most elite elements of the military. And I think we got to credit the military again, because I'm sure it's a similar groups of people who did that with the Ukrainians after 2014. And it shows that the United States is still capable of making a, a difference in these kinds of regional fights. And I don't, I, I don't think it's a good, I mean, listen, I, I don't know this, this uh, current, uh, you know, campaign from the Ukrainians, obviously it's not going as well as we hoped, but that's not reason to think that Russia's going to win this war. Russia's got a lot of problems. It's interesting that to note that there was a concern six months ago that the Chinese would start directly arming Russia. It doesn't appear to have happened yet. So I'm incl- I want to start off by saying they're handling that war much better than I thought they would. And the reason I thought they would screw up the war is because Biden was utterly clueless in the run up to the Russian invasion. He was constantly doing everything he could to have summitry with Vladimir Putin when it was pretty obvious that Vladimir Putin was uninterested and we failed to deter the Russians, which would have been, which should have been the, uh, the foreign policy goal. Now, um, would Trump have deterred the Russians? I mean, all I can say is they didn't do this when he was the president. I don't want to like give him too much credit, but I do think you have to credit the people around Trump who were Russia hawks, despite Trump's you know, horrendous rhetoric. So, so let me, can I ask a question? Yeah, here? Yeah. Why are Republicans so bad on Ukraine then? Right. So like if it's the one thing, maybe not the one thing, but it is a thing the Biden administration is doing right foreign policy wise. 
And you hear all this talk about how this Ukrainian offensive better succeed uh, because if the House, you know, I mean, if the Senate flips and and Republicans are in the White House and the Ukrainians can't show that they, you know, can can take the fight to the Russians, that the aid's going to dry up. Like why? I, I don't get it. Why there is a, you know, we're beating back the Russian empire. Putin's, you know, getting fought to a draw, if not losing, right? Relatively on the cheap from Amer- from the you know, meta yeah, American, yeah, absolutely. right? No, yeah, yeah. no American young men and women are in harm's way, save a few special operators who I'm sure are mugging around there, but like not in the way they were in Afghanistan. Like why, w- why would you be against this? Okay. So I, ha- I have a, an answer because I've thought about this a lot too. It's a good question. Um, there's all, there, there is a group of people who are now kind of on the right, I guess, that have for a long time, you can, the American conservative, Pat Buchanan, that, you know, sometimes they're called isolationists, but basically these are people who have always believed that America should not be a, a republic, not an empire, is the name of a famous Pat Buchanan book. And that um, all of this kind of over anything that we're doing overseas is probably a bad idea. And there's a long history of that. Um, and sometimes, by the way, I should say the anti interventionists are correct, like World War One, And sometimes they're you know, just fatally and horrendously wrong, like in World War II. But that's always been a part of it. That's not, th- that's, I think, been constant. The reason that you're seeing this, uh, let's call it isolationism, kind of gain purchase at this point, is because a lot of people look at it like it, they're, they're committing this, this uh, mistake that Christopher Hitchens used to say, letting your adversaries do your thinking for you. So a lot of people are deeply, like, deeply feel they're they're very upset and angry about banning true information on social media about covid for example or they're very upset that you know uh the teachers unions or like you know universities are kind of promoting a view of uh, gender that is uh in their view like just anathema to common sense and science okay so that's these are issues. Those are issues that we all know people are very upset about, and then then they notice that the the same people who will hector them and support the censorship of, you know, stuff of the censorship of anti maskers or something, right? Have Ukraine flags in their bios on social media, and they say to themselves, "Okay, well, if the regime is for an independent Ukraine, then I'm against it because I don't like." what they said about COVID and I don't like what they said about school closures and I don't like what they say about trans issues. And I don't like, you know what I'm saying? So right. if, if they're, they wrong, if they're wrong together, on one thing, they, they must be wrong on this. I mean, but it's I a very s- human, we see it all the time. Human beings, yeah. like it's a very, but, it's a trap. But, 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 I, I like but, but, to say Rich Goldberg is wrong 95% of the time, but there's no, 5% of no, the things but, I, but, I agree with Rich Goldberg on. But, and wait, it doesn't but wait mean a second, but wait oh. a second, e- Eli, you, you, I mean, you are, a veteran now of commentary magazine. And I think about the history of commentary itself, the history of anti-communism, the bipartisan partnerships and alliances in our foreign policy that were forged in Congress through the cold war that extended, I I think until the Obama administration, I think let's say maybe the Bush administration, Iraq starting to to really crack it uh, wide open, but, but Obama cracking it much further with the Iran deal and other things. is it really like impossible now to imagine a bipartisan coalition that can be enduring that is inside the grassroots, not the Congress? We have a bipartisan majority that's going to vote for aid for Ukraine, right? They, 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 but for the Senate Republicans, by the way, Ukraine wouldn't be winning this war. Right. Uh, people should realize that as far as who's actually fought for funding and, and forced the, the Biden administration to do more. But at the grassroots level, because I see the polling and it's not good, uh, are we really just like I, I? I agree with your sentiment; it's a sociological analysis. But that means that we're just in tribes for everything. We're no longer able to like be in the same tribe for foreign policy, but on different tribes for everything else, like we used to be. Well, not necessarily. I mean, I think what it shows is that it's not a deeply held conviction on the part of the people who are answering those polls in the grassroots. I mean, which is to say that, like, yeah, I'm against Ukraine. I'm, you know, I'm against all those people. 
You know what I'm saying? And for that, if they look at it like that, then as that issue sort of dies down, and by the way, it probably will just look at like no one in the Democrat. I mean, listen, in 2020, there were lots of Democrats who either couldn't announce like defund the police or were actively saying that some of them were elected to Congress. Maybe you've heard of Cori Bush, right? So that was a thing three years ago and no one we're nowhere near that. It's not just that Biden doesn't say it. It's like no Democrats want to be anywhere close to that. If you look at all of the, you know what I'm saying? So so that's an example of like, it looked like an emergency. We're going to have crime in the streets for the next 20 years. And I'm not saying it's not a problem right now. And there are problems with like very progressive prosecutors sometimes and things like that. But it's there, like that turned out to be a paper tiger, right? I mean, like where where's the... Where's the it, no? Let me put it like this: Will Democrats pay a price if they say, "I think we need cops"? Well, we thought in 2020 they absolutely would. In 2023, they won't pay a price at all. So I'm saying right now, Republican lawmakers, if they say, "I think we should support the Ukrainians," they're doing the fighting, they're doing the dying, and Russia's been our enemy now for almost 100 years. So I'm for Ukraine. Right now, it looks like they might pay a price in a primary. But I wonder if that if they're going to if, if that would be a politically risky thing to say in two or three years. And this might just be an example of defund the police for the Republicans. All right. Eli, we got to ask you about Israel and Iran. Um, and then we're going to go to our lightning round. So one more I'm substantive excited. question. OK, and I'm going to I'm going to leave it to my good friend, Rich Goldberg, because, uh, you know, I don't know. You're right. Uh, a broken well, clock. E- e- Something about a broken clock being right well, twice e- a day. E- e- Eli, uh, you already invoked Rob Malley's name, the special envoy for a former. Yeah, it's like, I, 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 Rich, I want to be like, Rob Malley, drink. Like, you know. <laughs> it's, like, it's like it's like the code words that you have to say into the phone to know you're being wiretapped by the NSA. Or like, in honor of Paul Newman, uh, of, of um <laughs> Of uh, Pee Wee Herman dying, you know they used to have on Pee Wee's Playhouse. They had the word yeah. of the day. Whenever they, whenever they said it, everybody yeah, yeah, had yeah. to yell. So Rob Malley, everybody yell. Okay, yeah, sorry. But sorry. so, so I, so I'm not going to be predictable. I'm not going to ask about that because I think it's obvious where we would go there. But I do want to ask about the upheaval in Israel, which has gotten a lot of people very worried, no matter which side of the aisle they're on and and where their views are. Uh, people who are serious, people in the security field who are very concerned about the upheaval socially, reservists saying they're not going to serve, Iran looking at this moment and saying, hey, we're going to seize on this. They're, the defense minister of Israel having to go up to the Lebanese border to say we're going to you know, potentially put, uh, put Lebanon back into the Stone Age if Hezbollah attacks us because the threat obviously is, is quite large. Uh, and yet there's a lot of controversy over whether or not the U.S. should have an involvement here. Joe Biden obviously believes he should be involved in, in, in that debate. And there are a lot of pro-Israel organizations, Jewish organizations, who have also decided that they need to be involved in the debate. Where do you even even center and center right ones? Right. No, I'm saying, like it's, I'm it's not just it's not. Well, I'm just, it's not just the J streets of the world. It's like lots of people who are like mainline, uh, even center right. Yeah. Pro-Israel, sure. American, For Jewish sure. orcs. So, uh, so, so you you come at these things in unique ways and creative ways. So, I want to sort of figure out if you've cracked the case here of what's going on there, what you expect to happen there, and what should the U.S. be doing about it or not. Okay, I don't think I'm really qualified. I'm not there. I don't cover Israeli politics like on a daily basis, but I will say this: um, as a general kind of principle stepping back i am grateful that a safe haven for our people exists in the state of israel and i recognize that i have chosen to live my life as an american citizen in america and not pay taxes in israel and not vote in israeli elections and not serve in the idf and that that inf- I've always thought that that means, to a certain extent, just thinking, and I'm not speaking as a journalist. As a journalist, I've written critical things about Israel. I'm, it's a separate issue. I'm talking about as, like, thinking about it like that, I sort of say, I, I, I mean, I, I am very, very, like, reluctant to get involved in condemning or, like, second-guessing questions about security uh, for the state of Israel 
because I don't have to live with the consequences. So I just want to say that. And yet I understand that that state exists as a safe haven for me if history repeats. So that's the first thing I would say. So I am troubled when I see rabbis saying they will not say the prayer for Israel because they don't like a slate of judicial reforms or the outcome of an election. I can tell you my personal preference. I didn't like the outcome of the election in some ways because I don't like Smotrich and Ben Gavir, and I think that they're dangerous parties. I think I know the history that they are um, kind of on a lineage from America Hanna, who I would call a Judeo-fascist. So I, I have no, I mean, like I, I don't like that, although I, I admire a lot of things about ben, Benjamin Netanyahu and what he has done over the time when he has been prime minister. But that said, I think it was cynical to try to form a coalition with them, and it would have, I would have liked it if, if Netanyahu had taken the view of one of my heroes, uh, Menachem Begin, who would leave the floor of the Knesset when Kahana spoke in that one or two years where he was allowed to do that. Then you have this issue of the judiciary in Israel, which I don't profess to understand in the level of detail as some other people. I would recommend uh, reading uh, Lahav Harkov and others for that. But what I'd say is, it's kind of, it's as an American, like, you know, the Supreme Court in Israel has an enormous amount of power and it doesn't seem like there's much democratic accountability. And if after an election, the people who win the election would like to reform it and put it for a vote, uh, I don't think that that's a reason to shut the country down. But, you know, like, I also recognize that, like, it's such a deeply felt thing right now that there's an argument for doing what I guess has happened, which is to go gradually and slower, which sort of seems like they're doing. And then finally, the Biden piece, which is, this is none of Joe Biden's business. Uh, it's not like, I, I almost feel like I want to get beyond this point where like the presidents of the United States love Israel so much. They want to like, you know, get involved and engineer and make sure it's doing everything right. No, I mean, I just, I respect that the Israeli system and the Israeli democracy is going to work it out for themselves. Um, we've had such a incredible pendulum shift we, from the first Arab party that has participated in a ruling coalition to the first time Kahanists have participated in a ruling coalition. The country is in a kind of flux right now. I don't know where it's going to land. The only thing I know is that because I want it to remain a Jewish democracy, that it's up to the Israelis to do that. So that's how I look at it. And I think that like, it's inappropriate for Joe Biden to tell me like, oh, this is going to, you shouldn't do this. This is the soul. That's all really bad. It reminds me of stuff that the Obama administration did when they were funding like some of these peace groups that were involved in the election. I don't like any of that. Like, I think there's a legitimate concern there. Although again, I, I can't, I will not co-sign on Ben Gavir or these other, you know, I won't, I won't co-sign on those kinds of parties. So, so you know, let me ask you a question in a different context. Yeah. What if it wasn't Israel and it yeah. was just like another significant recipient of American foreign aid? What if it was the French and they were doing a very no, controversial no, pension no, reform and no, people it, were in the streets and no, actually no, dying? No, no, no. Uh, I'm serious, right? Like what if it was another country? I'm kind of serious too. Yeah. Okay. What if it okay, was another well, country? We, ha we, have a, we have an example of that. There was a coup in Egypt, and okay. there was a brief temporary pause in aid to Egypt, which was then restored for hard strategic geopolitical reasons because we still had, right. you know, and so we the, pre the, the president's the not calling for, he's not calling for, you know, suspending aid to Israel I'm, or anything but, like but that. I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like comparing Egypt to Israel. I'm just not. No, no, no. Like, I, I'm I'm not, not, I don't want to compare yeah, it to just, either. I'm saying like I the coup, it, but like, I'm just the saying coup like, was far worse. The we coup have was an actual example right. of a democratic yeah. ally that's going through social upheaval with a very controversial reform to a major element of the state government that that forms a backbone of their democracy people out in the streets actual violence not just a lot of flags and great photos right and i don't remember joe biden issuing a statement on the on france i don't i, don't, I can't imagine i don't know of one white house readout that was put out about a major phone call to tell macron you got to slow down on that pension reform that is really you know i mean it's a nuclear power you know, it's like a NATO ale, and like, I, I'm sorry, like, but, well, but Israel, I, I, like, we should, we're, we're going to be like, well, I think you know, the judiciary committee. Yeah, but Rich, you could all, Rich, here in Rich, you could also point to time after time where uh, recipients of 
major recipients of American foreign aid, American governments comment on stuff going on there. I think it's an oh, it's hold on, of, Jared, Jared, Jared. Yeah, I mean, it's not the same as direct like aid to like you know the French Treasury, but NATO is yes. largely supported by America. And that's I, defending the, the. It gives the French the luxury I, I, yeah, of I not spending enough on their defense. So I mean, I don't know. Like we, 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 we. You know, we could argue that they owe us. You know, and that we have just as much of a right. I, I, I my, my view is that like, I well, understand. I understand when, when the, when I understand how the United States would say, "Listen, it's our policy," especially like until fairly recently. Like it maybe it's a, but it's our policy to want you to pursue a two-state solution and get back into the Oslo process because we have Arab allies that are pressuring us and we need that and it's important strategically. That was a fair argument 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, maybe not so much now. But when it comes to something like this, like, you know, because there are Israeli parties that are on the left and the Labour Party, which is the founding party of the country, which is just kind of like a shell of itself. Well, okay, that's life in the big city. That's that's politics. You know what I'm saying? That's like what what business of that is the United States? If you want to, if the United States wants to say, uh, the, you know, I I disagree with it. I would like a president that didn't do this. But if everyone's going to say like, okay, this new settlement block or this, this decision that you made in East Jerusalem or something, it really affects us because we have to worry about the entire Muslim and Arab world and something like that. I kind of understand that. This I don't really understand. Okay. All right, Rich. Yeah. I think we're ready for the lightning round. Let's do it. Uh, all right. So you go ahead, Rich. Uh, Eli, what is your favorite Yiddish word or phrase? And 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 profanity is allowed. Well, I, I I'm not going to use profanity because my favorite Yiddish phrase I think is sechel, which is street, oh sechel, sechel yeah. like yeah. street sense. Yeah, the idea that um, I love that phrase because it it talks about you know our people uh we we love book knowledge we love learning uh we you know we sort of measure status by you know what universities you went to or back in the old days how much of the torah and the talmud you knew sechel refers to that kind of other sort of intelligence like do you understand that the czar actually doesn't like us have a little sechel right right. right. you know he's never he's never going to be good for us you understand that it's it's so funny because like that like i only learned that growing up in a negative way like it was always like that that person has no 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 (laughs) yeah no sequel right (laughs) i I have to say i I recently used it in a podcast to talk about um james schlesinger who was briefly the director of the cia and he was the one that put out the order from the director of the cia to say anybody who works for me or used to work for the cia I want you to let me know of any activities that violated the CIA's charter. And I'm like, this guy is off the charts brilliant. He has a PhD in economics from Harvard, but he didn't have the seckle to understand that the CIA operates outside of the law. Yeah. And the last thing you want to do is create a paper record of all the crimes the CIA has committed in the last 30 years. So, Okay. Yeah, favorite Jewish food? Oof. Favorite Jewish food. That is a tough one because there's so many good ones. I guess I would go with the latka. Um, I love a good latka. From where? Do you have a specific latka that's like your favorite latka? Well, my mother makes latkas, uh, and she does a great job of that. That's the right answer. Yeah. My mother, you know, home, (laughs) it's home cooking. I've had it though before. Like, you know, you can, you can get it. If you go to Barney Greengrass, I love Barney Mm. Greengrass in New York. Uh, you can order like a side of latkas. They're pretty good. Um, I've done that when I've had like a massive, but you know, like obviously get the bagel on the locks there. Homemade latkes are the best. They always yeah. homemade. Always are. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Always. Rich, you go. Okay. Do you, as a journalist, as a recovering journalist, a current journalist, uh, current, journalist, journalist yeah, yeah. current journalist, current right. journalist. Do you have a favorite journalist of all time? I do. And I'm going to surprise you. Okay. My favorite journalist of all time is Zev Jabotinsky. Okay. Explain that one. Okay, so Zev Jabotinsky, obviously one of the founders of Zionism, yeah. and Theodor Herzl as well, but he, his, his career was as a journalist. Correct. And that is how he kind of, you know, that's, that was his main activity. And a, cr- a chronicler of the times. Absolutely. I mean, you could say, I'm, a, I'm wearing right now, you can see, hold on, this is my Theodor Herzl shirt. You could say maybe Herzl would be my favorite. Herzl's the best. You know, he's the OG, but I like, Jab- I like Jabotinsky. I think yeah, there's, <laughs> well, there's great wisdom. Herzl as the OG, I feel like I want that shirt. Yeah, right, like it's great. I have signed <laughs> okay. that. Okay, last one. Favorite columnist of all time. Okay, um, so for sentimental reasons, because he was like a mentor of mine and a friend of mine, I want to say Christopher Hitchens. Even though there are plenty of times I really disagreed with him, he 
before he, he never got came around to the right position on Israel. But if then another way I would answer it would be maybe like a Charles Krauthammer, who I always found that like when I read Krauthammer, I usually was saying, okay, that's what I think. So it's one of those two. I'll, I don't know. I guess I'll, I'll say I'll say Hitchens just because of, you know, I knew Sent- him and missed Sent- him. Anyway. For sentimental reasons. Sure. And that'll be the music that's queuing us off here. Eli Lake. Thank you so oh, much for so joining much. us. You can read Eli in Commentary Magazine from time to time and listen to him on the Re-Education Podcast. Eli, it's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been a pl- the pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Thanks, Eli. That was great. Awesome. And that's our show for today. I know you've been with us for about an hour. Thanks for staying with us. Uh, what a conversation. We covered a lot of ground. Hopefully you've learned a lot. I learned a lot. Jerry, I know you learned a lot. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Most importantly, tell your friends because that is always going to be the best recommendation we can ever get. Until next time, this is Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening.